0: Today, we're beginning a a brief study on Paul's second letter uh, to this young pastor, his protege, Timothy. Second Timothy, as uh, I hope you'll come to find, is an intensely personal letter that I have loved. Maybe you'll see some of that in what, and as we go through this letter, I adore this letter. This is an amazing passage in the scriptures. And over the past summer, I was just walking through the pastoral epistles 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and this book got lodged into my heart, and I just felt like I needed to preach it. I don't know how to describe it other than that. It is an emotional book, primarily because of the nature in which it was written. Paul, when he writes this book, is in prison. That's not unique. A lot of the books in the New Testament are written when Paul's in prison. He's in prison, presumably in Rome this time, facing imminently his execution. He's confident he is about to die. And he's writing to Timothy, his spiritual child, to come to him before he dies. That's effectively the thrust of this this letter. And he offers in this letter the kinds of encouragements, the kinds of exhortations you would expect from someone who knows that their time on this planet is very, very short. And so it comes from a place of deep compassion for Timothy. It comes from a place of, of, of loving urgency and a zeal obviously for God to be glorified in Timothy's life and ministry. This letter is moving to me because I think in part, like Timothy, I've learned so much from the Apostle Paul. So much of my understanding of who God is and who Christ is, has come from this man. But even more than that, I, I really feel an obligation in this letter for all of you because I love you all And I believe that the season that we're walking through right now as a church, that there really isn't a better text in the scriptures for God to fix our hearts upon than this epistle. And I hope that you see that or feel that way in short order. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the first eight verses, and then we're going to unpack uh, them together. 2 Timothy 1, starting with verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So this is how Paul begins his final letter in the scriptures, his final letter that will be included in the canon, potentially the last piece of literature he wrote. And as with all of his letters, he begins, he uses the same sort of epistolary conventions of his time. He puts his his name and his identity first, then he puts, uh, the, the, the recipient's identity and then he uh, has a greeting that follows. This may seem weird to us because we like to put the name of the person we're sending the letter to first. That's not how they wrote back then. And I think they probably wrote better than us because the sender doesn't need to know who they are first. They need to know where the letter comes from. He says here at the beginning, listen, uh, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Out of all that he could have said of himself, this is how he identifies himself at the end of his life. He is an apostle. In the Greek, it's apostolos, and it means messenger. He is a messenger, he's been sent with a message, and his message is from God. He didn't, this isn't a job that he chose for himself. This isn't something that he had planned as a young man. This is precisely, if you know Paul's story, the exact opposite of what happened. The message of the gospel, the message that he preaches now is the very thing that he was fighting to extinguish. And on his way to export his hatred towards this message in the city of, of Damascus, he was, as you know, radically changed, something changed in him. He went from being an adversary of the message, probably the foremost adversary, to being the foremost emissary in history of this message. And this was done, Paul says here at the beginning of the letter, by God's will, not his. Ephesians 3.8, he explains this a little bit more. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul didn't do this. It was God's power that did this in Paul. Then he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the gentiles the unsearchable riches of christ now consider this and reflect on the fact that in first timothy he tells timothy listen let me tell you who i was before i was converted to, to christianity i was a blasphemer i was a persecutor and i was an insolent opponent i was the chief of all sinners And if he was here right now, I feel really confident in saying to you that he would probably say all those titles that he gave himself in 1 Timothy are understatements about where his heart really was. They don't depict it all. Paul knew, and it's clear in his writings, that he was the last person on earth that this should have happened to. And yet it happened to him. Paul's point, it was God's will that made this happen. He continues here in verse 1 saying that it happened according to the promise. His apostolic ministry is according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, which is another way of saying the gospel. The promise of life in Christ Jesus is the eternal life we have by trusting in Jesus. And... If you think about it, this is the message that Paul militated against violently until he was subdued by it. That God loved the world in a kind of way. That he was willing to part with his own son. That his son would die in their place so that if they trusted in him, they could live. That's the life that he's describing here in verse 1. And for Paul, it is from this reality, the truth of the gospel that all of his ministry flows. This is where it comes from. This is the fountainhead, the promise that God has made through his son by granting us eternal life. It is the source, think about this this way, it's the source and it's the focus of his ministry. It's why he does what he does and it's what he's pointing to as he does it. That's what's happening here. And Paul basically wants us to see here that this is the message that he was sent to bring and it's important because of what he's gonna unpack later on in this letter. But right now he wants Timothy and us to know, listen, my life, my ministry, everything about me is dominated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that he moves into verse two on Timothy, who he calls here his beloved child. Now Timothy is not Paul's biological child, Obviously, Paul met Timothy in his second missionary journey as he moved into the and through the city of Lystra in Acts 16. And upon hearing about Timothy and meeting him firsthand, Paul says, I want you to come with me on this mission. I want you to come with me and join me in this work. Timothy's mother, as you'll see, was a Jewish woman. His father was Greek and apparently an unbeliever. And so, To Timothy, no doubt, Paul was very much like a father that he had never had. Paul had other spiritual children, too. This wasn't alone. Timothy wasn't alone uh, in in that respect. But Paul would say very loudly that I have no one like Timothy. In fact, that's precisely what he says in Philippians 2.21. Listen to this text. Paul, I have no one like him. I have no one like him, like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That is the welfare of the Philippian church. This is why he says, for they all seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know, Philippian church, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. This is an incredible compliment. Paul is gushing about Timothy's service with him in the gospel. Timothy's proven, tested worth because Paul says, Timothy isn't like the other ones that I could send to you. I could send you other people, but they're mired in their own self-interest. They're not like Timothy. They're not dedicated and committed and devoted to the interest of Christ Jesus. That's his main point here. Timothy was completely devoted to Jesus, and it drives him to serve with Paul with a kind of zeal that reflects a a son who loves his father, serving alongside his father as his father does his work. That's the picture you get of Timothy and Paul. This is why Paul calls Timothy his beloved child. He doesn't use that language lightly. The search, you'll, you'll see that there's no point in the scriptures where he uses that language about other people except right here about Timothy at the very end of his life. And then he continues with this standard greeting. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That should sound pretty familiar to you if you've read some of Paul's letters. He wants his readers to know that anything good from this letter is actually from God the Father and from Jesus his son you'll notice like he begins his letters this way with this idea of grace and peace from God the Father and from Jesus coming to the recipient, being given to the reader of the letter. And then at the end of his letters, if you if you ever paused and looked at the end of Paul's letters, he always ends with grace be with you. Not grace to you, to you, which is what he says at the beginning. He says grace be with you. And it's important to see that, that what he's saying here is, is that the words of this letter the meaning in this letter is grace it's grace from god through me to you that's what he's trying to communicate here it's not a ver- verbal like flourish that he's using that Christians use oh grace and peace to you some people may use it like that paul's intentional he says the letter that i've written by the Spirit of God, is it embodies grace and peace coming from the Father, coming from the Son to you. Take it and eat. Receive this letter. That's not the only thing that he puts here though. He puts mercy here, which is unique. He doesn't usually do that. Aleos in the Greek, which means compassion, mercy, tenderheartedness. So this is the only time that Paul actually uses this in a greeting and he does it with Timothy. So there's a level of compassion in his heart as he reaches out to Timothy this last time. This is a deeply intimate and personal letter. But I want to make something really clear at the beginning of this. This wasn't just written for Timothy's benefit. This wasn't just for him. We know that Scripture was written, and this is Scripture, the Spirit carried along the writers as it was written. And Paul was carried along as he was written this so that everyone who would read it, everyone who would receive it would be reading the very words of God. We know Paul knew this to some degree because Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus, presumably during this time. And this letter would have not just gone to that church and gone to Timothy. Everyone in the church would have heard it read and then it would have been circulated among the churches that were in that area. Obviously it was circulated. We have a copy of it right here. Paul knew this was gonna happen. So when he writes it, when he closes the letter, the you, grace be with you, is a plural you in the Greek. He knew others were gonna read this. So listen, as we dive into this letter and as you read scripture on your own, any of the letters in the New Testament, know that it was written with you in mind. I'm not saying everything in in the text is specifically about you or deals with something you're going through, I'm saying that God had, for example, this day in mind. God appointed today that you would be here. You'd be hearing the words of scripture right now. That did not surprise God when it happened. He knew it would happen when he inspired Paul to write this letter. So just unpack that in your mind. God had you and this day in mind when he inspired Paul to write this letter. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of it. It wasn't written in a vacuum. God is sovereign over these things, and he knew that that was going to happen. There are are aspects of this letter that God means for you to hear today and receive. Now, let's go ahead and dive into the body of this in this text. Verse 3 begins with uh, what is customary in most of Paul's letters, which is an expression of thankfulness to God for the recipient and an acknowledgement of prayer for the recipient as well. That's how he begins this. Paul wants Timothy to know these things. Um, he wants him to know, first off, his gratitude toward God for the one that he is writing to. And then secondly, he wants Timothy to know, I'm praying for you. This is. Uh, almost always how Paul begins his letters. Um, He begins with this statement of, I'm thanking God for you and I'm praying for you. That's massive. It's massive because of the context. Paul is writing this from prison. He has chains on his hands as ink hits the parchment. And yet he's writing this. Yet he's saying he's the one expressing gratitude to God and praying for Timothy while he is awaiting his execution. Who is this man? Who is this person? That is remarkable to be on your way to certain death and yet to be mindful of and grateful for and prayerful for people, others, anyone. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be praying about me. Paul doesn't. praise night and day for timothy and for others countless others this is how he he describes it in verse 3 i thank god whom i serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as i remember you constantly constantly in my prayers night and day as i remember your tears timothy i long to see you that i may be filled with joy So Paul is expressing gratitude for Timothy while he remembers him and prays for him every day. He says he remembers Timothy's tears and he longs to be with Timothy again so that he might be filled with joy. We don't know why or when Timothy had wept in front of Paul. Probably had plenty of opportunities on the mission field. We only know that Paul remembered them. Timothy's tears were not a small thing to Paul. They weren't trivial. He remembered Timothy's tears and they were important to him. They fueled his gratitude for all that Timothy was to him. And they fueled him getting on his knees and going to God on behalf of Timothy. What becomes clear in this letter is that Paul wants to see Timothy one more time. He wants to see him one more time before he departs out of this world. Paul knows better than anyone else, as he says in Philippians 1.21, that to die is gain. To die is to be with Christ, and he says in that text, it is far better than anything you can conceive of in this planet. He knows that, but here he expresses clearly I still want to see you one more time before I go. I want to see you before I die, Timothy. Both for your sake and for mine. Then Paul shifts over from that and he mentions here that he serves God with a clear conscience, just like his ancestors. We don't know who specifically he had in mind when he wrote this, only that whoever they were, they were individuals in his life, or at least that he could reflect on who were worthy of emulation and whose own service to God were a template of faithfulness and blamelessness. They walked with God clearly with a conscience that was blameless before him. And this is important for Paul to bring up here because he's gonna pivot from Paul's experience of, of serving God with a clear conscience like his ancestors to Timothy. What is your experience like with regard to that, and that's what he says in verse five. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So this echoes what he said of himself about his ancestors. And he says here that these were people in Timothy's life that poured into him, his mother Eunice, and his grandmother Lois who imparted to him this sincere faith that he currently has. Now, let, we got to get out of our mind some sort of magical experience where they put their hands on him and this faith flowed through them. That's not what happened here. They taught him the Bible. And we know that because Paul in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15 is going to say, Timothy, they taught you the Bible from childhood. They taught you the scriptures, the sacred text. Even though his dad was was Greek, his mother, who was Jewish, taught him the Old Testament scriptures. This came from Lois, to Eunice, to Timothy. Now I want you to think about how remarkable this is, what Paul is saying here. He's saying to Timothy, your faith exists in large part because of them. Them, they're the ones who did this. The the, the faith that is possessed by Timothy's grandmother, and mother is the same faith DNA-wise and experientially that Timothy now holds in him. That their communication of the scriptures, their passion for God instilled itself in Timothy through their teaching. Paul knows, I mean, even though he was the main reason that the gospel had any, any kind of proclamation in Lystra, he brought it there, he personally, he knows that despite that, he recognizes that that the foundation of faith that is in Timothy was wrought by God through his mother and his grandmother ultimately. The faithful teaching of his family is what led him to believe ultimately. And uh, this is interesting because, I mean, we live in a culture right now, I'm sure you've heard parents say this, hopefully you've never said this, maybe you have. I don't wanna indoctrinate my kids with what I believe. I want I want them to be neutral. I want them to decide on their own what they believe. It's got to be their own thing. And I'm going to be honest with you. Hopefully, this doesn't come across too harsh. Don't be foolish. Don't be ridiculous. There is no neutral position in the world. Your kids will be catechized one way or the other. Either by the world, the world's ready to catechize them, or by the Bible. So life is not a buffet line of all these equally valid possibilities. There is one path and everything else is death. That alone should get Christian parents in a frame of reference, I wanna keep my kids from dying spiritually. Or I wanna bring my kids to a place where they can trust in Jesus Christ and have new life. Christian parents in general need to eject from their minds this fiction of objectivity in their child's hearts. Here's the truth, and this is the truth, this is hard. I want you to hear it, because I love you. Your children's souls will live forever, either with Christ or in hell. That's a fact. There isn't a third option, and the point that, Timothy, that Paul's making here is, you have a part to play in this. You have a role, a major role to play in that eternity. And Timothy's mother and grandmother knew this. So at an early age, they saturated Timothy's hearts with the truth of God's word. This wasn't a situation where Eunice sat down with Timothy and said, listen, I believe this and your dad believes this. You got to make a decision for your own. Eunice wasn't about that. She didn't play that game. She's like, I know God. Your dad doesn't. So you're going to know God anyways. Eternity is at stake. Eunice understood this. Lois understood this before Eunice. So if we're willing to teach our kids to eat, to stay alive for 60 or 70 years on this planet, we should be willing willing and eager to teach our kids how to see, how to know, and how to glory in the preciousness of the scriptures. Because it is only in them that we have eternal life. In fact, it's going to be said in 2 Timothy 3, that specific thing. So Timothy's sincere faith is a result of both his grandmother and his mother. And Paul wants Timothy to see that. He wants him to know it. He wants to see the external evidence. You are a believer. Look at your your parents. Look at your mother and your grandmother. Look at what they poured into you. That sincere faith dwells in you. And it's because of this faith that Paul pivots now and he gives Timothy the first exhortation of this letter. He tells him, because your faith is real, because your faith is sincere, you must fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. You must do this. We're not told what this gift was, only that it was given to to Timothy when Paul laid his hands on him. But it's likely that this is referring to an event in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul tells him in verse 13, he says, until I come, Timothy, this is in the first letter, Devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the Council of Elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what is the gift? What is the gift that is being described here? Well, we don't see the exact gift, but whatever it was, it had to do with teaching. It had to do with the exhortation of scripture, had to do with exposition of what God's word was and the proclamation of that. And you're going to see that surface throughout second Timothy. I mean, if you give an opportunity to, last series, I told you read through John seven. I don't know how many of you guys did it, Read through 2 Timothy. It takes like 14 minutes, 15 minutes on dwell, Michael. 15 minutes on dwell. Um, and it's awesome. I would suggest that you do that. Get it into your DNA as we go through this as a church. Well, one thing it's important to recognize that this gift that Timothy have has, we don't need to know what it specifically was. That's not Paul's point. Timothy knows. Paul's point for us isn't, what did Timothy have that was a gift? That wasn't his point here. His point is, The principle that Paul is communicating here isn't just true about Timothy, it is true about every Christian. Every Christian, all of you if you're believers, have been entrusted with a gift from God. We are all stewards of God's varied grace. This is 1 Peter 4. Whether it's natural gifts that you've had most of your life, like a fast runner or whatever, or whether it's a spiritual gift that you received in in, in a moment, like what Timothy has here, he says there was a specific gift through the laying on of hands in prayer and by prophecy. So some gifts are given that way, evidently, and others we've had most of our lives. Yet all of those gifts must be stewarded for the sake of the gospel. Just like we saw Paul at the beginning of the letter, when he introduces that he's an apostle, he says it was according to the gospel. If the gospel, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, think about this, is the only source of salvation in the world, then what more important purpose could our gifts be leveraged for than to support that, the proclamation of that word in this world? And this is precisely what we see throughout the New Testament. Romans 12:6, for example, Paul says, To the roman church listen having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them use the gifts now for what what are we using the gifts for for ourselves to make money for our bank accounts no no not at all he tells he proceeds to tell them in in romans 12 use those gifts for the sake of the body for the sake of the body and ultimately the ultimate serving purpose is the proclamation of the gospel to each other to christians to unbelievers, the proclamation of the gospel. So every gift we have, every talent that we've been entrusted with, every zeal in our hearts to accomplish some endeavor, and every passion we have is ultimately for this end. There is no higher purpose than this. And so Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. And his point is that fire can never go out, Timothy. It can't go out. You do, Don't allow it to be quenched by inaction. Don't allow it to be, to be quenched by unfaithfulness. Fan it. Fan that flame. This is true about Timothy. And it's true about us. And supporting his exhortation, Paul undergirds it with verse 7. So look at verse 7 with me. Why are we to fan into flame God's gift. What does it matter? He says here, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's the reason. That's why the four is there. That God gave us this, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is why we can, and this is why we must fan this flame and we often use this verse I know I have in the past used this verse you know your kids scared oh God hasn't given you a spirit of fear my parents used to do that with me Um, and that's to be perfectly honest that God tells us over and over fear not fear not fear not so clearly he has not given us a spirit that would allow us that should allow us to be afraid in that in that sense but uh, and we looked at that last year I mean 2020 was a great year to look at why we should not be afraid But this verse isn't saying that. This verse is saying that the spirit that God has given us isn't a a spirit of, of fear or cowardice in the Greek. This word is delia. It's like running from battle. God hasn't given us a spirit that drives us away from conflict, drives us away from battle. No, no, the spirit that he's given us is his own spirit. And Paul therefore tells Timothy, listen, the spirit you have is not one of cowardice that walks away from the task that has been given you, the spirit is a spirit of power, spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. And I think it, like even if you're just carefully reading this text, you look at the, the language that he used here and you can see that the gifts of the, that, that he's referring to here, that the spirit empowers must not be a gift primarily for Timothy's benefit. Why use the word love? What does love matter? if he's using it for himself. So this isn't to serve us. The gifts we have, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are to serve the needs of others. And the greatest need of every single person in this world is to know and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been given gifts ultimately, eternally to accomplish. (laughs) And I I think it's fair for you to, to stand back from this and say, well, Jeremy, that makes total sense. Completely understand that but you said Timothy was a teacher. And it's obvious to me how a teacher would use their gifts to proclaim the gospel. They would teach it, but not all gifts are like that. In fact, Jeremy, most gifts are not. And that would be a fair statement. That's completely true. It's completely true to say that most gifts are not teaching like that. But it would also be ridiculous, if I can just step back for a second and say, it would be ridiculous for us to suggest that any of the gifts that we have are, are cut off from them being used to leverage people towards the gospel, Leveraged, leveraging those gifts to point people to the gospel. Any gift, any gift can be used to that end. It doesn't matter what they are. Whether they're art, whether they're music, whether they're planning, whether they're leader leading, whether it's serving, whether it's cooking, some of them are more clear in how they would be used, others you'd have to be creative with. All of them can be used and employed to bring people to the gospel of grace. It might be something logistical. It might be administrative. It might be creating a platform <laughs> for people to preach the gospel. It might be artistic. It might be technical. There's a myriad of different ways that they can be used. It could simply be that I do this for a living and I give money to missionaries on the front lines. And I know the gospel is being preached there. Whatever it might be, all gifts can and should be used to showcase the worth and glory of Jesus Christ. They can point to the gospel, to the cross, visibly and vocally. You do not need to be a teacher to be a witness. You don't need to have a microphone to witness the gospel. And the question I think we need to ask is, are all the gifts and talents that we've been given by God, are they terminating on us And serving us or are they being used to point people to Jesus that's the question I mean if what the Bible says is true about eternity if what the Bible says is true about heaven and hell then everything that we have I mean really this it's not an overstatement I think to say that at some level everything that we have should be expended for the sake of the gospel to bring people to the knowledge of the truth this is what Paul is saying. This is how urgent it really is. And this is precisely what leads to verse 8, which is what I wanted, where I want to draw things to a focus for us today. Verse 8 says this, Therefore, in other words, given all that I've already said, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But listen to this, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God this is where Paul goes. Do not be ashamed, which if you do read through 2 Timothy, you'll know this is the heartbeat of the letter, recurs throughout this letter. Exhortations, statements about why we shouldn't be ashamed. This is what it is. And and Paul would, if he was here and he could say, listen, the one thing that I want Timothy to walk away with, the one thing I want you to walk away with is this, do not be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. After thanking God for his beloved child, after pointing Timothy to the heritage of faith that he has, he exhorts him, he says, fan into flame the gift of God that is given to you. And the reason you need to fan this into flame, Timothy, is because you're gonna be tempted not to use your gifts for the ministry. You're gonna wanna avoid using it for the sake of the gospel. You're gonna wanna avoid using it for the testimony of our Lord because you don't wanna suffer like me. You don't wanna be in prison for Christ like I am. And Paul looks at that resistance in Timothy and in all of us and he says, no. We are called to share in suffering for the gospel. We do not run away from this battle. We do not run away from suffering. We share in it, which is a very strange perspective, especially for people like us in the 21st century in Western culture. This is countercultural for Americans in 2021 because, I mean, we do everything in our lives to avoid discomfort of any kind. But in truth, this has always been countercultural. Paul would never have to say this to Timothy if it was already embedded in him. Paul's telling Timothy, don't run away from this, share in it. And unless we, we, unless we confuse this with something that only applies to, to ministers and to missionaries like Paul and Timothy, we need to recognize that the invitation to share in suffering isn't just here in 2 Timothy 1.8 It is literally all over the scriptures, especially the New Testament. For example, the first time that Paul arrived in Lystra, Timothy's home city, before even meeting Timothy, he was stoned and then dragged out of the city with no vital signs. They thought he was dead. Then he gets up and he goes with Barnabas to the next city. That's amazing. But you know what's more amazing? Is that shortly later he comes back to Lystra, <laughs> the place where he pretty much died. And he meets with the believers that are there. And in Acts 14, this is what he tells them. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, there is no other way into the kingdom but through tribulation. That's how we get there. That's the pathway. And this isn't just Paul who thinks this way. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's point, it's not strange. Trials are not strange. They are normal. They are expected. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In other words, don't run from them, count them joy. Embrace the suffering, share in it. First John 3:13 gets even more specific. John says, "Listen, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you." In other words, the world's hatred of a Christian is normative. That's what John is saying. Paul knew this personally and intimately better than anybody else in the world. Indeed, he, I mean, he says this, for example, in uh, 2 Timothy, later on in this letter, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And they are all just repeating, basically echoing Jesus, who said this very thing. John sixteen thirty-three. Jesus in the upper room discourse. I think we looked at that the week before last week. He says to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then in Luke 6, 22, and I think we're gonna come back to this text later, so pivotal, he, he, he gives us a rubric, a framework for us to understand how we deal with suffering. Blessed are you when people hate you, and this is Jesus, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, Jesus says, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then just a few verses later, he follows it up with this. This is particularly staggering. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's heavy. The picture painted in the New Testament is not one of evasion from suffering. It's one that embraces it for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy. Share in suffering with me. And what Paul and all of scripture are saying here is that suffering isn't an exception to the rule. For the Christian, suffering is normative. Not that we seek it, not that we pursue it, it is normative for the Christian, and in fact, we're going to see in the coming weeks, God willing, that it is not only normative, but that it is it is essential. Suffering is in God's providence necessary. We don't have time to explore that reality today, but God willing, we will in the coming weeks because it's all over Second Timothy. What I want to do for just the next few minutes, as we close, is press Second Timothy one eight into our souls take the realities of 2 Timothy 1.8 and get them woven into our hearts. If we've all been created by God with specific gifts or granted spiritual gifts by his grace, they are for the gospel. The implication of this passage is that Christians can, I mean, indeed, Paul was preventing Timothy from doing this. Christians can and do ignore their gifts for the sake of the gospel because they are afraid of suffering. In particular, they're afraid to experience shame. I mean, Isn't this true about about us? (laughs) It's true about me. Let me just be real with you. It is easy for me to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in my home. I could do that all day long. It's easy for me to talk to other Christians and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is completely different. And we all know this to communicate the realities of the gospel, the the weightiness and the gravity of the gospel to those who are outside a knowledge of it, to boldly state it, to say, listen, to an unbelieving friend, if you don't take refuge in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you don't repent of your sin and turn away from it to the savior and his cross, you will spend an eternity without him. And the way the scriptures describe that eternity is outer darkness where there is, the sounds you hear are only two, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it goes on forever. If we say that, we will not be popular. We will not be liked. We will be ridiculed and we will be slandered and we will, like Paul describes here, suffer. It should not surprise us if we are faithful to the message that we experience this. And the letter of 2 Timothy exists explicitly to put iron in the backbone of Christians like Timothy 2,000 years ago and like us who can easily back away from using our gifts, back away from using the things that God has given us, talents that we have to, that could point to the gospel in order to avoid suffering. And 2 Timothy Invites us into this suffering. And the first step in, into that, that reality is do not be ashamed. God has given you his own spirit, Timothy. Peter calls this the spirit of glory that rests upon you in the middle of pain. In the middle of sorrow. In the middle of suffering. Not a spirit of cowardice. Not a spirit of fear. No, this is the spirit of power. Power of the living God. That's what Paul says in verse 8. How we endure suffering, we suffer by the power of God. In the middle of our suffering, God strengthens us and He holds us firm, and we're going to look at how He does that next week. It's God's strength that, that emboldens us and allows us to do this. We've been given a spirit of love, real, genuine love. This is important for us not to confuse. He does not say we've been given a spirit to placate the culture or mollify the culture or, or just go along with the flow that's not real love that's not real love if you know the truth of the gospel real love will actually invite ridicule and slander because we're going to call sin what it is it's sin and uh, I mean we, I, I'm going to just speak personally for myself I hope that you can benefit from this I need to get over wanting to be accepted by this culture. I need to get over it. And I think you probably need to get over it too. Wanting to be loved by this world. I need to get over it for the sake of their souls. Because real love is honest and it will invite slander and hatred because we're going to say things about life. We're going to say things about sex. We're going to say things about gender. We're going to say things about marriage that the culture is not going to be happy with. They're not going to want to hear And therefore, we have a spirit of love that is willing to step into that. And furthermore, we have a spirit of self-control. That when we are slandered and when we are reviled, we do not slander and revile in return. We have a spirit of self-control, just like Jesus, who entrusted his soul to the faithful creator while they were sending him to the cross for crimes he didn't commit. I mean, I think we, we need to recognize that if the world agrees with us, if the world agrees with us, not that it's not going to agree with us on some points, but if the world agrees with us, we need to be very cautious and careful because the world did not agree with Jesus. They killed him. And I'm not saying you need to be contrarian. I'm not saying you need to be argumentative. Don't be those things. You don't need to be any of those things. I'm saying be a Christian. Be a Christian. Use every single breath in your lungs, every resource in your hands, not just to do nice things to people, which is good, but to point to Jesus, to preach the gospel. Use your gifts to this end. There is no such thing as a Christian incognito. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. Christians, the reality of being a Christian is isn't that i should say specifically in our culture too where we have the freedoms of being able to say i'm a christian yet we tend to turtle up and not say it if your christianity is is secret you're reading a different book than i'm reading that's not the new testament that's not what we see in acts And this is precisely what Paul's making war against. In the heart of his beloved child, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to fan into flame your zeal, your passion for Christ. Make it a raging fire that will never ever go out. Suffer with me, Timothy, for the sake of our king, for the sake of his kingdom. And I mean, if we follow Jesus, if we really follow him, his path goes to a cross. And this is what Paul means when he says, share in suffering. This is our calling. You and I, I mean, Christianity is very, very simple. When you bring it down all the way to reduce it to its lowest reality, we have one purpose in our life. We have one thing that we were made for, one thing that we were saved for, one thing that we were redeemed for, and that is to glorify Christ Jesus. And we do that in this broken world through the gospel of grace a grace that was, listen to me, purchased by suffering. It didn't come to us without suffering. So what I want to do is I want to close with Hebrews 13, 13 and just read this text with you as an exhortation to me personally and an exhortation to all of us. Hebrews 13, 13, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's the cross. Therefore, the author says, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Well, why? Why should we do that? Well, he tells us, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That right there is the anchor. The reality that this This world is is not our home. We have a city and it's coming. And God willing, we'll see that next week. Paul's point as we begin this series in 2 Timothy, his entire point is, Timothy, share in suffering. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't run away from this. Use your gifts for the glory of Christ and for the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, um, this is a weighty, weighty passage. The the implications of what you have instructed through Paul, Timothy, 2,000 years ago and how that reality plays into our lives in this present world, Father God, is not a simple or easy thing. It is a heavy thing. And what we need right now, Father God, is your spirit. What I need personally right now is your spirit to come and to embolden us. Help us as we go through this letter to feel the the glory of the gospel for what it really is. To see the worth of Jesus for what it really is. That the worth of Christ is, is, is worth us giving up everything for if that's what it calls us to do. Help us to not be ashamed. Father, when I think back at all the opportunities I've missed in my own life to communicate the gospel because I didn't want to be awkward, I didn't want to be weird, and all the regret that I have for it, Father God, I just plead with you that you'd help me personally, help my friends not live that way anymore. There is one savior of man And his name is Christ Jesus. And we need to be able to communicate that for the sake of their souls. Please help us, Father God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.